Good evening. Welcome to our programs at the Hirshhorn Museum. It's wonderful to have you here. We are meeting this evening to be present at the Meet the Artist. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating conversation between Wayne Gonzalez and Zan Dombadze. I would like to first uh, acknowledge uh, several individuals in our auditorium. It's Melissa Ho and Mika Yoshitake, two assistant curators who have put together the engaging exhibition, Dark Matters, in which Wayne Gonzalez's work is included. And if you haven't seen it, I very much encourage you to come back and look at it. I would also like to thank Frank, Frank, uh, Fred Ognebini for his generous additional support of this program, as well as the staff of the Hirshhorn Museum, including Kevin Hull and Sarah Gordon for their expertise. I'd like to outline some of our forthcoming programs so you can come back. Um, Ai Weiwei, According to What, is an exhibition that opens to the public on Sunday, October 7, and will begin with 2 p.m. exhibition walkthrough with Mami Kataoka, curator of the exhibition at Mori Art Museum in Tokyo. It will be followed on the same day at 5.30 by a panel discussion addressing art and social change, very much representing the thinking and the kind of work that Ai Weiwei does. It will be a very interesting panel, including Judy Woodruff, who is from PBS, Zbigniew Brzezinski, political strategist, Gayatri Chakravoti Spivak, who is a literary critic, and Roger Burgel, artistic director of Documenta 12, which included Ai Weiwei work in a major work, way, and currently he's curator of the Busan Biennale in Korea. So let's turn to Wayne Gonzalez, who is a multifaceted artist who is known for his application of techniques that combine painterly craft with photographic technology. Gonzalez's paintings, like his Pentagon on View in Dark Matters, leave considerable space for free interpretation. Gonzalez's work often has notable social and political content, drawing on sources such as photography and documents that reflect the events of the past 50 years. He was born in New Orleans. He received his BA at University of New Orleans and currently works and lives in New York City. His solo exhibitions were held in New York at Mary Boone Gallery and Paula Cooper Gallery, with which he's associated now. He showed here in DC with Connor Contemporary Art and more recently had important exhibitions held at New Orleans Museum of Art and Centro de Arte Contemporaneo de Malaga in Spain. I had the privilege of seeing recently his superb exhibition, Works on Paper, at Stephen Friedman Gallery in London. Wayne's work has been included in numerous group exhibitions, including at Dallas Museum of Art, Yale University School of Art, the Rose Art Museum, Brandeis University in Massachusetts, Whitney Museum of American Art, and PS1. You can find his work in some major museum collections, such as the Hirshhorn Museum, Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo, Guggenheim Museum in New York, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Thanks. And now, Alexander de Banze, who is Assistant Professor of Art History at Fine Arts and Art History Department at George Washington University. He recently presented a paper, We Will All Be Artists, at the College Art Association Annual Meeting in Chicago. His publication, including Bas Jan Adler, Death is Elsewhere, and Contemporary Art, 1989 to the Present, edited with Susan Hudson, will be published in 2013. He recently contributed an essay entitled Of Passivity and Agency, Jack Goldstein, for the exhibition catalog Jack Goldstein Times 10,000 for Orange County Museum of Art in 2012. 
In 2011, he was awarded a Creative Capital Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant. So here we are with two brilliant, very creative people. So please join me in welcoming Wayne Gonzalez and Alexander Dumbadze. Thank you for the very kind introduction, and I'd like to try to lower the expectations, <laughs> at least on my part. That was so nice. Um, this is this is going to be a. I'm really flattered to be here with Wayne and to talk and, and to be a part that uh, uh, Melissa and uh, Mika had asked to be a part of this. And um, we've known each other for a while, and over the past uh, few months and weeks, we've been having some conversations, imagining how this is going to be, and what sort of exciting is realizing, um, getting up to the moment that I think there's some potential and chance and opening here. So um, I'll begin, to, I'm just going to ask some questions and allow Wayne to explain a lot. And uh, we'll try to speak for about 40 minutes or so and then open it up to the audience for questions. So I'm going to try to keep track of the time. So I wanted to begin with the work that's in the exhibition um, and that has such a nice pride in place and it's great to see. And one of the first things I wanted to, that struck me when seeing that work and wanted to talk about with Wayne is the, in, in the beginning, the, the, the scale and size of that work because this, that Pentagon work, is there, there are several others which have been made of different um, sizes and palettes. So I wanted to, if you could uh, begin by explaining some of the choices, why certain scales why the, the color patterns for those pieces. Um, hi, thanks for coming. Um, I, it was a time when I had been spending um, about a month uh, doing painting, cutting stencils. I've always done stencils. I've always done kind of hard edge acrylic painting. And um, I, I got to the point where I was really bored and, um, and I thought that... Um, you know, life is too short to spend one, a whole month on a painting, and it was. I, I had noticed that maybe like ten paintings were passing through each painting that I was doing. So I, I had this idea to try to automate um, my process, and I got. I invested in um, a stencil cutter, which is very similar to what um, what. Um, um, sign it is the machine that sign painters use now to cut um, stencils for letters and not stencils but um, vinyl lettering and with the idea of like taking apart photographs and reconstructing them as paintings and what I found um, in the process was that um, you know and I've also been interested in trying to do something like a more automated version of Rauschenberg's Factum 1 and Factum 2 where you could just make a handmade object and make multiple versions of that but still have them be, be unique. So there, there was a point at which um, I developed this methodology that had conceptual roots and um, I realized that I could just enlarge the thing and have the machine make them bigger. And, and there was this idea that I wanted a certain amount of detachment from the painting as a representation of a certain kind of power. I was doing Pentagon and the White House and so the idea that making one smaller, you had to, it, it, the difference between a smaller version and a larger version was that with the larger version, you really had to back up to, to see them and for the image to, to come, to become clear. So there was this idea that, you know, you can't really get close to that power on that level. When you get close, get up to it, it disperses. So that became interesting to me, and then I started playing with different scales, like I did a show in Paris of, with Pentagon paintings, where there there was a large one uh, on a fraw wall, and a smaller version on a, on a perpendicular wall, and when you were standing in a certain point in the gallery, um, they were the same size. Were you planning initially for that pushing away feature uh, that sort of the fact that the, the, that this large version doesn't really welcome you to you know coming close that it, or is that a sort of an accidental development uh, I guess it was an accidental realization of something I've been thinking about for a long time and something that I appreciated in other painting yeah because I, I mean that's I think that's a very 
right? This this sort of, in a way, push-pull aspect of the work and the viewing experience of moving forward and back. Because one of the things that strikes me when you really approach the works, I mean, the the image is recognizable. You have a certain understanding of, of what it is, and even from a distance, uh, a sense of how it might have been put together. But what one of the things that struck me is that it, it's a remarkably precise work, and all your work has is amazing precision. I thought it might be nice if you could um, sort of explain some of these processes of how things come together, the sort of beginning, the end, which you were hinting, you were talking about already with the scale, but like, in a sense, like, how does a work like this come together or really get put together, or we can show it with, like, the White House works or others? Yeah, the White House. Um, so, so there were White House paintings um, also done in the Spain, and um, essentially there were three three palettes. One was like this snowy white, um, which was slightly iridescent. The black one, and and then there was was a green version. Um, but th- this is essentially how it how these paintings get built, and th- there was this idea that they wanted to sort of structure a relationship to the image, um, as opposed to just kind of. Putting something down. As a, as a student, I liked you know Warhol a whole lot, and um, start, started looking at, got really deep into pop art. And but then at, at a certain point, kind of t- tuned into um, Lichtenstein as more of a systems artist and a portal to um, like artists like Saul Lewitt. So I mean, the model for the I guess so the the, the top row of images. The first one is the photograph I started with. The second one is what I did to it, um, like added parts on it. Just a the, quick, the photograph Sorry. was found or did you take the photograph? Found. For a long time I just, I work with found objects, found photographs um, in the really old days from stock and magazines and then the internet. Uh, and, and then the, the the middle one is what I did to the photograph. The third one is um, the, a painting. And um, so so the model for this is four-color process, um, printing process, dots, where, you know, each plate, it's a screen of dots that's turned um, at different angles to pre- prevent a moray from happening. And I just kind of reinvented it as a six-color process with one color. So the bottom two rows um, represent, it's sort of a screen printing model as well. So the bottom two rows uh, represent... Um, um, each layer that went into um, to, to building the image, and the first two are, are straight um, screens to define the field, and then the other three, the other four, are. are um, or different parts of the photograph. So the, on the first one, um, which would be the middle row um, furthest right, I, I just I, I put the screen over the photograph, over my photograph, and uh, picked out the darkest values. And then the next one, the bottom row furthest left, picked out the darkest values and the second darkest values. And the third one, you know, just moved incrementally that way. And then um, when you put them all together again as painting, the Transferring that and projecting it onto the canvas. No, um, the machine, the, the vinyl cutter cuts um, stencils, which are registered um, onto okay. the canvas, the same size as the canvas, and um, each layer is put on discreetly, painted, pulled off. How much? Um how much of room do you leave for spontaneity in a process like this? I mean, uh, when you're when you start painting. I mean, I, I one of the things that struck me um, when Gerhard Richter would talk about doing his early photorealist works. One of the things that he liked about them is that he didn't have to think about, or he had, once he had the subject matter sort of figured out, uh, then he can actually think about the way it's painted and think about the form and technique. That he sort of took care of figuring. You know, once content was covered to a certain degree then he could paint now I, I imagine he's he's playing a little bit with this and that's a you, you form and content are um, you know, hard to separate but there is a certain point where you need to concentrate on things. do you allow yourself now once you have a certain system in place then to deviate from there or, or 
Well, I, I, you know, I kind of believe in like intuitive responses mm-hmm. or intuitive, the intuitive energy of art, but I'm also a bit of a technocrat. So, so there's, um, the, 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 the gesture with these works is, um, in the, um, in the computer work. Okay. So, and, and in, in getting the methodology and inventing it. And then once it comes to fabrication, it's about mixing colors and getting that right. But, I uh, with with these works I don't really ad lib you know but but where the ad lib is happening earlier as you're figuring out yeah and it's and it's a situation where like you're you're making something and I'm drawing but I'm drawing with you know with a with a pad and and or mouse or whatever um, I actually don't like the mouse I like to use my finger um, and and but I'm drawing and then once I get to a point where I feel like I have to see it as a painting as an object. I'll make a full-scale painting. And if that doesn't work out, then I'll go back to the computer and even start from scratch to kind of do it. So that, that the gesture is in, the gesture is there. It's just in the subjective interpretation is there. It's just not, it's, it's, it's displaced. I mean, it's interesting you're saying about drawing on the computer with your finger and then also then going to a brush because, you know, we're just looking at the, the Koonings before where it's like paintings which are, to me, all about feel, like his feel and, and you know, the touch and the works. Where, do you find a certain difference? or do, I mean, I mean, really, you know, what it means to be drawing with your finger on the screen versus going to the brush. Is there a difference for you there? Does it really matter? Uh, oh, the brush with these is just, uh, I mean, it's like a four-inch brush just to kind of get the paint down. But, you know, there are things I do. I mean, I'm not, like, totally soulless. I mean, I, I kind of, like, I, I play with the mixture of the color. I want a certain kind of, like, translucency mm-hmm. so that there's, like, I, 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 I mean, I'm thinking as a kind of a, a traditional painter in a way, but working in acrylic. So there's this also, to, to me, they're, they're, like, everything is sort of a series of contradictions. When I realize I'm doing something, I try to contradict it if I can. And then, you know, so every stage, so like there's this idea that I'm working with acrylic because I love the opacity and the plasticity of it. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I'm, I'm thinning it so that there's like a certain luminosity where the dots overlap, they get more opaque. Right, 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 right. And, and that's hard. It's, I mean, it's, it's not hard, but it takes a certain amount of finesse to, um, to, to get it look to look like I didn't really care about that. Right, right. Yeah, because that's I think one of the one of the things we've been talking about. I like about your work is that there's a certain sense where all this stuff that you're talking about it's it's hidden, and which is kind of a nice part. I mean, it's it's there a little bit, but you know, it's part of this structure. But to a certain degree, when you talk about this relationship between surface and structure, you have this you set up such a sort of tight and complex structure that your surface is so good that it hides it and you know there's a sort of push-pull there sort of this relationship to it but there's a uh, I think it's kind of interesting I mean when we talk a little bit more about the um, the light works later it feels like the structure starts coming out more and that becomes as much about the work as anything um, but I was wondering maybe you can also explain actually even a bit more since we're in the a solid wit room like how some of the solid wits works were you were thinking I mean you mentioned like there's that I mean I think that's a really interesting reference point as a type of structure how does he come into play well I, I you know I need lim- I'm kind of artist I need limits you know it's like I need a set of rules to respond to and um, a p- problem to solve um, and I like that I mean I don't like limitless possibilities that's mm-hmm. why I don't paint in oils um, I just don't know what to do with them um, so as I said before I was really like into pop art and there was something about Warhol that um, that in big early on and, and Lichtenstein too especially those those works with um, like the own master paintings uh, or Picasso's or whatever um, it's it, this may be a total misinterpretation, but pop art for me was really about the dissemination of information mm-hmm. at a certain time. But then Lichtenstein sort of breaks off and he becomes like, and, and where he links up with Saul LeWitt and maybe Richter is that it then becomes something more like um, 
subjective and about the manipulation mm-hmm. of information. Yeah. And so, but then there's also this kind of structural reality where, like, you know, like the Lichtenstein's drawings are really all, all coded. Exactly. And, and so that links to Solowit with the pencil lines. When I first realized that, like, you know, the crosshatch gridded things where, where those delicate colors are mixing and making other colors, that was just mind-blowing. Right. Because then it was like you had a very rigid grid stru- grid-like stru- gridded structure that had... Um, it could, could could be emotional or, or psychological or something. And I always wonder for the people who would do these wall drawings for the um, Saul Wits, like what their experience was. I mean, because there's a certain degree, you know, he sets up a sort of system and condition, but someone's often doing it. And it has, I mean, you're still getting into a mechanical process. You're still doing, you're still applying certain things. And Well, but that's the thing, especially with those scribbly ones. I mean, my, again, it might be a misinterpretation, but I watched them make one. Mm once and um, there seemed to be you know it, it, this could be totally wrong I have no facts but but, You're in Washington. but there's this idea <laughs> in Washington um, there's this idea that um, you know with Warhol giving his the, the myth is that he gave the assistants vague instructions right. and so I always got the sense I watched him do one of these scribble drawings and I you know when you're working with a lot of people people have strengths and they have weaknesses and I got the sense that there was kind of a bit of poetic play between mm-hmm. what people were capable of doing and how maybe how big they yeah. were and and you know the way that the the there was the poetics of like the physicality of making right. something right. you know and which then becomes this uniform rule based um, artwork that has this other stuff built in yeah that's a very nice thing I mean I think that really speaks to what you're setting up here these systems with certain degrees of possibilities within them how has this changed I mean you've been you've been working since the late 80s and somewhat similar thing I mean how have you found over the years your process has changed or has it been sort of um, perfected along their view Oh, my, my, I like to change um, from time to time. I mean, I get into like these like two or three year cycles of where I need to reinvent the whole thing. I mean, like I said, I like a set of rules. I need, um, I need something to respond to. Um, one motivating factor is boredom. Mm-hmm. I just get bored and I want to do something else. Another thing is like ideas come up when you're doing something that seem interesting, but you know, I, I mean, I, my, my, I, I have two ways of working and if I'm left on my own I'll just be completely unfocused and working on a million things at a certain time but if I have something I have to do then that causes makes me want to that I need to focus on um but then I can start adding and narrowing down. And, but then all these other ideas are yeah. like they're in that but then they're also maybe um seeds to something for something else. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm glad you mentioned boredom, which is one of those things that often doesn't get discussed in creative practices. I mean, I, except for like someone like Bruce Nauman, who will make that very much like a focal point of the work, because it seems that that's also a key aspect of making decisions and creativity. Eventually, you, just, you hit the wall, or you can't do, or you, you, you push your way, but you don't, I mean, you have a very sort of labor-intensive process, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's completing a work or doing that do you find yourself sometimes getting bored? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That's kind of what I'm. Yeah, I mean, there. Like I, I saw something uh, about or read something about Liechtenstein, and Irving Blum was saying that Liechtenstein would only. He was really excited about like the first few paintings of a series, and then he got kind of he lost his steam. And, and this was Blum's like, you know. Uh, I don't know how true it is, and he's, Blum claimed he could tell the difference. Yeah, you yeah. know, but I totally relate to it. I mean, I understand. It's like once you kind of get it and you solve the problem, then there's a side of it that becomes repetitive to mm-hmm. me. And and I don't like variety for variety's sake. And when you set up these series, I mean, we can we can move to the next group by some of the. And I'll, I'll ask a couple questions. And these are installation shots. That's the show in Paris I mentioned. 
Yeah. Sometimes I think of like I like to sort of organize around shows, um, and and um, this was in the run up to the invasion of Iraq, and well the show was after I guess, but the ideas were before, and. Um, there was something attractive about, like Bill Clinton smoking pot at Oxford, or something. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you, or you can't go and you can't go and mm. criticize America from abroad. And it was sort of apt to sort of criti- build a body of work as a critique, and then show it in Paris at the time of Freedom Fries. What are when you're doing these series? Just to finish with the, this boredom idea, or this, or talking about the process. When do you feel things are over? I mean, I think uh, one of the tricky things with certain paintings or any type of composition is like knowing when to stop. You said that the paintings already have rules for finish, but when does a certain series feel like it's over for you? Well, it's about energy, you know. It's like I have a certain amount of energy to give something, and. Um, and deadlines are helpful, so they, you can kind of get into a mode and you start doing things, and, and you get into the zone, and then and it happens. And I mean, I work all the time, but there are times when it really gets Go like on. intensified, and then that's when like you start drawing on things that that you don't even know where they're coming from, like or you know they're part of the mix and they've been there, but but they start coming out of the work and. Then generally, that's sort of like it doesn't. It can't. It's it's just enough at a certain period. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering, we can look at these are who are they? Who are they? <laughs> How, what are the what are the rough size of these works? Yay big. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, I think there's the Pentagon work, these works can be sort of associated with a, a, a political message. And one of the things that I'm struck by your work is that sometimes I think these are still remarkably, I mean, they're loaded images. They're, they're, they're things where we can start even maybe recognizing certain reference points or seeing them, but they're still sort of selected images that at the same time are just strangely as portraits. And so sometimes some of the political content could be it's something really a viewer brings to the work or the context or contingency situates it. So I want you to, how do you think about these, these works as political or Commentary. Or well, there, I, I never want to be really didactic in my in my um, paintings, but I, but I allow that to be, to happen in other places. Just because if I'm feeling that way, I feel like I have to get it out or, or like see it. And and so there was a period between when I was going. Um, to, pro- to protests and and um, and um, you know through I guess roughly when the Republican convention came to New York mm-hmm. um, that I you know I, I was sort of like worked up and and I needed to have an outlet for that creatively and so I would go to my studio and I would make I would focus for a couple hours on works on paper mm-hmm. and that would be the didactic stuff and some pretty like extremely didactic and um, and then I would I was also doing the Pentagon and the White House at the same time and the works on paper were never meant to be shown uh, they were just things I needed to do or throw them in a box and move mm-hmm on and which is what I like to do with drawings anyway and and so what I had hoped was that the didactic stuff would get out of the way but then that energy would carry mm-hmm. over into the white in the mood of the White House and and you know I was trying to like mine I, there were parts that I would I was looking into um, ideas of like authenticity and and permanence and um, like the color the, the color of painting during war. Right, right. Do we so, have but the idea with these was. Um, oh, we have to come back to that. Well, but these are like graphite rubbed onto um, iridescent acrylic. Okay. So they're they're a little they they have two kinds of um, iridescent things happening and. Um, and, and so um, the, the idea was like I started doing these things with um, these pictures of them trying to sell the invasion and um, and making them more like newspaper things, right, like right. pictures. So something more kind of traditional looking. Right. 
and 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 then there was this this also at the same time the Citibank campaign that seemed wrong at, to me at the time, or or not wrong. I shouldn't say that, but more like um, espousing certain value system right, that right. I didn't necessarily agree with. And and but there was this idea. I was really working with this idea of permanence because it was an advertising campaign, and I figured you know it was it was really important for the time. It was saying something about our time, and it would but it was advertising, so it would right. just kind of like disappear at a moment's notice. So there was this idea of going around documenting it and um, and translating it into something that was like like an artwork that was maybe traditionally seen as more I mean the, the, the process of these sort of remind me of Ankawara's date paintings in a certain way of I mean because there's a way that I mean because when you did these you you were faithfully reproducing the ad as much as possible I mean is that correct yeah, yeah. I, I, I took photographs I, I, I altered the um, you know Corrected the perspective or whatever in the computer, and then I traced over. Like the the, the one of the interesting things to me in problem solving with working with this this um, vinyl cutter is that it works in vector. Okay. So whatever goes, which is line based and shape based. So whatever, which as opposed to bitmap. Um, I mean, it's really clunky stuff. But but I, whatever I made from photographs, I would have to transfer to vector. So there was always a certain amount of like relying on the computer and also human manipulation. So I would just put the photograph in there and I would draw these in a vector-based program. So when you see that, which is a type then of translation essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so information. Because yeah, so if you compared this to a photograph, it would look slightly different. Although I was trying to do it as best I could. So. One of the things, I mean, you, you were talking about this idea of authenticity, which I think is um, it's a, it's a rich topic because it, it, you're speaking at a, a certain moment where uh, a, a war was sold and uh, there's a, where it was based upon certain people's credibility of making people sort of, you know, convincing Colin Powell's in front of, um, it was all about his credibility that would allow him to make that case of the United Nations. And how does that sort of, you know, there's some sort of very specific rich content where this sort of fact fiction are coming together. And it seems to me sort of very interesting to, to think about this via painting and through representational techniques where the, the question itself about painting is, you know, the relationship between the its image or depiction and, and its thing itself. And how for you, how important is this question of authenticity in your practice? And, and where, where do you want to see your painting sort of opening up under Understanding about that. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I always try to play it straight. You know, my my my. Uh, I want to be there in my work. In a place, I want to be in a place that approximates, like where I am as a person, no. and so I'm trying to like. Be alert. Um, think about what I'm seeing, but also allow myself to respond sub- subjectively. Right, right, right. And and so I don't know if I'm. It, it, I, I'm not really trying to say anything as much as just trying to to respond and be honest. Right. About what I, you know, what what as an individual. You know, I mean, it's not. If I were a writer, I would write it. Or, I mean, I think I, what what to me is always, I think, very important that your works are constantly reminding people because there's a, what I always find sort of troubling at the same time interesting is that most of life you have to go through taking things at face value and believe in it because it'd be impossible if you're constantly doubting everything because you get nowhere well but that's that's the thing I mean if I'm afraid of something or if I'm if I'm um, if I actually do believe something that I really feel like I shouldn't be believing right I'll go with the believing it yeah. you know because I want to be honest and I want to like explore what that means and why I you know so doesn't always work out. Right, right, right. It's art, but so interesting. So one of the, I think one of the really striking things about the way you work, and one of the most important aspects, we can go, actually, why don't we go through and show these, because this ad campaign was, I remember when this came out. Well, we it, only have those two. We only have those two? Yeah. This is a good one. Oh, that's good. Cool. It's 
bending like it's going. Yeah. This is some of the other stuff I was doing at the time. At the time in the background. And playing here upon the upside down flag theme. Yeah, yeah. As you know, just like that literal thing of um, the flag, upside down flag being a symbol of distress. I got it from Rick Rubin. <laughs> so these are good too. These, this series began uh, right around the same time, or two thousand four, maybe two thousand four. Yeah, there were the, yeah. I started doing this at like there was a little bit of overlap with, but but I was doing, you know, the link is the politic the, the those works on paper, those politicized things. I was doing those. I started doing the White Houses, and I was doing those at the same time. Stopped doing the White House houses in the Pentagon, mm -hmm. but was still doing the works on paper when I did these. Because one of the things I want to ask you about these works, which I think are different than the, the Pentagon or some of the other works, which are single image, generally single images that you focus, these become at least two different images juxtaposed, right? Yeah, oftentimes they're collages. And, and so... I think what's really critical about your practice is the act of selection, I mean, it, you, because you're often choosing images. And, and I have a feeling, or something I've been thinking about, is that one of the really defining features of recent art today, there's a real stress on the role of selections instead of necessarily creating something. And I wonder what you, what you, if you could talk a little bit about the way you're sourcing images or the choices you make. Um, why certain images, I mean, this is obviously maybe something that's more instinctual, but why certain images seem more compelling than others, and how you go about selecting? I mean, what's the, how much the research process in there? Um, well, it, it, when, I, when I'm doing that, there are, um, I mean, do, going through images and looking for things and, is like drawing for me. So I'll go online and, uh, you know, when I was doing these works, I would spend, you know, I'd work, um, I, I would work on in the studio and then I would go home at night and I would just spend a lot of time online just looking at images. But the idea is that, you just, you know, I would download like 300 images okay. a day or something, just looking and, and being intuitive about what I was looking at, just taking things um, because I responded to them in some way or I liked them and I wouldn't even question it. I would just take them intuitively, start with a bit of language, um, see what came up and um, take the, and oftentimes it would lead me away from where I started, um, which was really good. And, and so I would take things and then after I'd get like, you know, um, a certain number of images to look through, I was also responding to what I was doing in the studio that day. Mm -hmm. And then I would start looking at things and things would present themselves as maybe being able to work as a painting. Okay. There would be a certain frontality about them. There would be a value structure. Something that I could work with, which would eliminate like pretty much two-thirds of what I collected. So, and then, are certain two-dimensional, certain photographic images... I mean, are you saying that certain, not all images can be a painting? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was a very small percentage of ones that made it to painting. So there was like a process of elimination, like, you know, through layers of possibility until, you know, and, and working up to the point where certain images got made into drawings and then like physical pieces on paper and then from there to... Um, painting so and I mean I like you know for this series I can you just move through them yeah please um, you know I don't know thousands and thousands of images that got taken and um, you know maybe 500 drawings and um, 12 paintings so one of the things I want to follow up because I like this idea that I think one of the real pressures for contemporary in general for any artist is that the works of art's relationship in a field of infinite images. I mean, there's so much imagery out there. How does a work of art, you know, stand a chance to a certain degree? Um, or vice versa, what's its relationship? And I, I'm really now curious thinking about how there's there are certain images that actually work for painting. And I, when I, one of the things I'm wondering is what, in that sort of selection of a, of a work that you think okay, this makes for an interesting painting, and then you turn it into a painting, what then does that say about the images that didn't make the cut, that are not compelling? Is it because of the 
the way a camera maybe flattens something? Is it because of this, this type of choices someone makes or the images? Are there? Well, with these, there was a real frontality. I mean, there, there's a structural, with these, there's a structural relationship between the way the image is made and the way that it's uh, constructed as a painting. So, yeah, there were certain things, whether they're like value, you know, value being the lightness and darkness of an image, um, or perspectival issues, yeah. or or just like not, it, it, it's like, it just, you know, it's like the Peter Principle or right. something. Like things move up the ladder until they become incompetent and they get kicked out. <laughs> It just doesn't, you know, it's like a very, it's it's a multi-tiered yeah. process that, and, but, but you know, you can, the, the challenge with these images was that there was like a certain, I wouldn't say formula, but a, a methodology and, and, and a kind of light that I was trying to, to bring to them. And I was doctoring them along the way, like I doctor a perspective or I move things or whatever. And that's one of the things I learned, like the dots. I mean, everybody, not everybody, but there was, there were questions about whether, how the dots related to Richter because dots can be really big. Yeah. Right. I mean, not Richter, um, Polka. Polka. Yeah. But it was more like Richter because the dots were something that I was using to just diffuse what I, that was like Richter, like because the polkas, I mean, they're often really almost so much on top of the painting when they're there. I mean, these are then sort of hidden in the back, and they're yeah, it's all it, it all relates. It's all mm-hmm. kind of like built, but. Um, Oh, I forgot where I was going with this. It was good, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll come back. I mean, like, uh, there... Um, oh, I know what it was. Good. The way it relates to the Citibank things is that, like, it was the other side of, like, that power issue with mm. the White House and the Pentagon because it became, like, this idea... Uh, I mean, at the time, they were building up the west side of Manhattan, and I had lost my view of, you know, the Statue of Liberty from my studio. And, and, um, and um, there was this idea of, like... And, and, you know, you go out west and you'd ride by these beautiful mountains and there'd be these, like, gated communities in right. front of them. And, right. and so the question was, like, who owns all these resources? Right. And, right. you know, and, and so the, the, the basic idea was that there were all these buildings in front of mountains or other sort of natural resources. This is one of my favorites because it... Um, there's a dining, t- there's a banquette and a dining table, and then a artificial bottle of body of water, and then a row of chairs, and then so like you have to jump through all these hurdles to over all these hurdles to get to um, the real thing. And there's something really haunting about these works because they're totally absent of of people. Yeah, they were depopulated. Yeah, which is, I mean, which also sort of. I mean, I think you could kind of play with the sort of the blankness of the image, and it's sort of the flatness of an image is, it seems so too, because, I mean, even perspectively, if you kind of collapse it, there really would be no space for anyone there, I mean, in the type of world. Um, so these works moved into... Crowds. The crowds. And I was wondering if you could explain this sort of this next series because what, one of the things I like about the depopulated and the populated is that there's a sort of dialectic you have going. You're setting, you, you know, you talk about doing these opposites in relationship, and the, um, and it's, it seems to me you really couldn't have one of these series without the other. Yeah, the crowds were a direct response to the um, to the to the green paintings because I was kind of bored making them. Like it, you, you know, you spend like like th- hours and hours and hours cutting stencils and putting them on a painting and then like 10 minutes of painting and then hours and hours and hours of pulling them off. It was really a nightmare. Um, but after a while. But um, I mean, it's just about fabrication. But but the crowds are directly, they came out of the Pentagon and there was a dot version of this first crowd that I felt represented like a certain kind of zeal. And but um, and I was really trying to push people back away from it. But, but but I found the idea when you get up close to a painting a little bit unsatisfying that you don't mm-hmm. have like like anything to to look at. Um, that you know. So the crowds are where the. Uh, the crowds grew out of this idea from going to protests where 
You want the long version or short? Let's go for the long right now. We're okay. <laughs> we're almost we're wrapping through this thing. So. All right. So the, the, it was a sort of direct response to going to protests um, and how um, you'd, you'd be in this. In a, if you were there in the middle of this whole crowd, you would have, um, you know, it would be sort of have this feeling of empowerment, mm-hmm. and like you could actually change the direction, you know. Um, but you couldn't have it. You didn't have a sense of scale. Yeah. You just had your own like sense of scale, and I, I had realized like it's you know there was this this desire to run back and find out how big the crowd was. Absolutely. And then when you got when you got um, the news, there was always like it was always such a discrepancy between who was sort of assessing the scale of the crowd. Right. Um, so like the left would say, you know a million or right. whatever it was, 400,000, and the right would say 100,000. Right. So there, it, it, the light bulb went off. It's like, like scale is such, can have like such an ideological slant. That's interesting, yeah. So there was this, this thing of like painting the crowd and then really playing up the roughness of the things up close because I didn't want you to be able to see the, perceive the image as an image when you were up close because of the scale of the dots. Mm-hmm. So I tried to do that with brush strokes. So I went back to like the way I took images apart with the White Houses and I start taking, take, started taking apart. The crowd seemed like prime for that. And, it, you know, um, so I would paint each part of the image um, discreetly but use an extra big brush and kind of do it methodically and uh, there's some images that actually, do they show some of the details where you can see the brush work? Those, I mean, that's great to see the scale. Yeah, these are So this is um, That's painting, which I guess is like about 50 by 100, maybe. Cheap. Inches. Inches. <laughs> Good idea, though. That's <laughs> and then that's, it's, and this is a closer one. So if you get up close, it gets all like weird and mutated. But I mean, what's, what, one of the things I, I like about these things, and when you see images of the crowd, and often you're taking cropped images, or you're cropping them, or the, the images are cropped to begin with, is, like, especially this one, this sort of where they're looking, and, you know, at what are they looking, and to whom, and then as a viewer, you know, like... Certainly, there's a long history of paintings of, of you know of a certain figure, of the portrait sort of making contact with the viewer or not. But there's you have a whole mass potentially people either turning away or turning towards. Well, that 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 goes back to the selection process because once this was the first image I worked with, and then I felt like I had to have something else. So I downloaded images, and I, they're, they're, I'm always looking for a kind of poetic narrative thread. And and so this one, as I said, had a certain kind of zeal that I responded to. And um, there, there was this one that felt a little more civil and um, deferential, so that, you know, people are clapping, but they're politely clapping, and some are looking back. So it introduced this idea of doubt, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and then these were people are just kind of waiting around. So that was the sort of basis of um, the first um, crowd paintings. And then as I moved through it, there, there was this one, which um, is also part of that image, where I felt like, the, you know, it came from like the 40s or 50s or something, had this real kind of historical resonance, and they were looking at you, and, mm-hmm. and like, you know, you have to answer for something. And then, you know, it moves on through... Um, now, last year, now these like kids kind of passively watching something, but painted in a really kind of what I thought was like electronic colored. Um, I mean, this image seems like obsolete to me. Like a group of people watching something electronic seems ridiculous. Um, to to kind of wandering beach people. Right. To that, so like things become there's a narrative thread that becomes a response to what came before. I think I was going to ask you this before. I hope I didn't ask this already, but I was getting a bit about the issue of the selection. But I mean, the crowds, I think, becomes because these are such really, I think, powerful images. What does working through this and painting, the type of choices you make, 
you know, what does it actually reveal about the images you select or our relationship between these, these sorts of found imagery or images that we come across now through searches on the internet or relationship even between a, a photograph or either analog or digital and the, and the painted image. I mean, what is your, how do you see painting sort of, I mean, does it free something in time? Does it sort of make, make the obvious strange? Or, or for you, what does it start, you know, really? I guess I'm sort of I'm responding to a certain kind of simultaneity. I, I, want, I want to look at what's out there and what's happening in different places. And, and, um, because you're also taking some of your own pictures now, right? Yeah, I've run out of I've run out of steam on the internet. I'm not. I I feel like I'm I'm not find I'm not run I'm not having the accidental finds that I used to have. I mean, it just seems like 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 ridiculous to to make a statement like the internet is um, is um, limited. But it has become limited in some way, and I don't know if it's like my own psychology, where I am psychologically or emotionally or whatever. But I just am not responding. Like it feels, I don't know. It seems too popular or something. Or that the the nature of searches sort of limit the chance occurrence now, or the algorithms are more specific, or searches. Yeah, and, and I don't know. There's something to this idea of like living in New York, and you know you can't like walk three feet without tripping over somebody taking a picture or something, and so that seems kind of interesting to do. So I started doing that, and, and it seems you know, see, I, I never wanted to like take use my own pictures. I'd, I could never do it because I subjective. I was too involved subjectively. Knew the place, knew mm-hmm. the things. I'd get caught up in all kinds of issues of representation, and and so this like finding something gave me an armature of like a layer of detachment that I mm-hmm. could respond to and not could and, and concentrate on anything. And to answer your question in the long form, <laughs> like like yeah. what do I find in painting? It, it, it's like if I could just like take something I think will be interesting and has a certain kind of resonance. Um, by painting it and hand making it again, there's something that I want. I want to create a kind of experience that is primary, like an object. You experience the object instead of experiencing the image, which is closer to kind of like taking the picture yourself. Yeah, it's sort of like when you know, in a way, like when Cezanne said, "I want to make impressionism solid" or something like that. You want to make an image, this sort of what could be a fleeting image, a thing that's there. Right. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, make it physical again something to engage in. With. Should we maybe open it up to questions? It's a nice spot to, to end. Are there questions from the audience? Yes. Who's painting? Chuckles. Do you like him? I... I how can't you like him a little bit? Like, it's magic. <laughs> I like yeah, it's magic. <laughs> I like I like them. I like the airbrush, the early airbrush things. And I I uh, are you thinking there is an overlap with the resolution and. I guess my, my, my issue with Chuck Close is that he seems like such a real painter to me. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of like a fake painter or something. I want the impression of painting, but, I mean, it's not really true, but I, I don't know. I, I like, I, I've liked his work. But there's a big difference in the in your work, in a sense, something we didn't talk about. But to a certain degree, you could say you appro- you were appropriating or working from. I mean, he was very he had a closer relationship often with the subject matter of the works. I mean, than you would. Yeah. I mean, or there's a there's a certain intimacy that he has doing these portraits. Then it's a different sort of intimacy than you have with images you're selecting. 
Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe one of the things also that with the the works is that we have you have actually a real tactile intimacy with these sourced images and found images. We the way we engage with them now, where everything is, we're become so comfortable with mediated images right. that it's just like being with a person. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I, I like his work, and I've liked his work in the past. He's not an artist I think about a lot because there's not this detachment. I, I prefer something that comes, that goes through filters in a way. And I guess he's, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in um, the fact that you s- went from selecting photographs not taken by yourself to taking photographs, and it sounds like relatively recently. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you make the photographs. Do you feel like you're applying similar processes of um, detachment that you talk about some of your other processes in, in capturing those images? Is it more akin to selecting? things from the internet only in real time and real life or um, I'm, I'm really curious about this uh, well, the, new the, process yeah it's it's a, it's it's ongoing and it's recent um, this this painting this painting was um, made from um, some uh, one photograph that um, a friend of mine took at Santa, in Santa Monica from the pier um, and it was like really panoramic and um, and um, I found that there you could kind of like look at it and create a narrative string and different cre- create a narrative relationship between paintings by just fracturing it. They, the paintings became larger when they were smaller somehow. And so I was really turned on by that. And I like, I've been, there's this Rick, Richter cloud paintings mm-hmm. where they're the same cloud kind of, but or they're the same size and they're different clouds or whatever, but they look like they're just sort of changing and there's a time-lapse thing happening. And I wanted that kind of relationship between paintings. So, and I was really interested in this image. So I went to Santa Monica and I took like 5,000 pictures, from, literally, from the pier. Like, I filled up a bunch of cards. And I went back to the studio and I looked through them and... I, I, there's nothing there except I took some really, I lucked out and took some really interesting photographs of the parking lot. So I'm, I'm working with those right now. And, um, but, you know, and it was the same with, um, these are pictures, pictures of my show in Malaga, but there was, um, this painting of this kid on a beach, um, uh, that I took um, in Mississippi and he was um, there was this group of people on the beach that were talking and they were drinking and they were smoking and they had an umbrella and there were cars parked right up against them and it was really intriguing and I was stealthily taking photographs of them and um, and I brought them back to the studio and it looked like like um, I was interested in them because it was like there was like a Manet moment going on Mm -hmm. and but when I got back to the studio and I tried doing some drawings and a couple of paintings it just wasn't happening but in the background there was this kid who was shooting a slingshot at the seagulls and he was rolling around on the ground and he was doing all this goofy stuff and I when I was photographing I hadn't even noticed him but then when I saw him in the background of the of the um, uh, of the photos I took um, I started enlarging him and working with him and it was the same as finding a photograph like I hadn't even noticed him so I bought a better camera so I can get higher resolution in the background. I think Talba had it. Hi. I was hoping you could go back to a group of paintings that you keep skipping over that kind of I interpreted as like stadium lights almost. These? Yeah, those. Could you talk about those a little? Yeah, these are great. Um, yeah, these... Um, the lead-in paintings to I had this um, I was on a like 20 years ago or something I was on a plane going to Europe and um, the sun was kind of coming up out of the window and I started photographing it and I got back to New York and I had 
maybe not 20, but anyway, a long time ago. And and so I, I got back to New York and I'd been playing with the image. I, I mean, this the, 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 the lifespan of these paintings is a really long time, even though the paintings themselves are started in 2010. Um, but but I gritted I gritted the sun, which seemed very sci-fi and interesting to me. Um, and it was at the same time. But I didn't really know what to do with the image, so I sat on that for a few years. And then there was this point where I started working with the plotter, the vinyl cutting machine, and I tried to make, I made a series of really expressionist kind of um, paintings like this, except like I wanted, I did a group of three. Did we put those in or we took them out? I can't remember. Uh, the greens? Yeah. We took, we them, took them out. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, but but they were little squares, and there were like 400 stencils on each one. And um, but the, there was this idea, like the making an, an expression, making an expressionist painting, and making multiple versions of that, making them the same, having the difference between be between you know the uniqueness of a handmade object. And it, it it just didn't have it for me. Like I, I mean, I showed them, and they were they they were acceptable in a way, but it didn't really like fulfill what I really wanted them to to do. Um, so I sat on it another like five years, and. Um, so then, there, I was in a kind of place um, where I could I could see it clearly and I'd figure out what these paintings were. And these were a response to um, the crowds. I mean, because especially with this image here, where I figured like most of those people were dead, and um, you know, kind of one of those people. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, so there was this this idea that. Um, that I wanted, that I was able to recognize the mood in these images, and also to kind of like recognize the methodology. So, I, I, I made the, I took the, the, I always work in black and white on, on the computer, and um, I kind of figured out how to make. I. I, I in Photoshop, made, got the image to be like 32 layers of values, and spent like four or five months mixing um, the palette. And um, I mean, the I made, brightness of these in, in person is pretty intense. As I well, they're 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 hopefully a bit complex. I mean, like there was this idea that I wanted there there was this idea about death that I wanted, and there was also this idea about it being very mechanized, the surface being very mechanized. I tried doing some by hand, and it was just, it was ridiculous. It just didn't work at all. And um, so there was this, so I figured if I got, if I got, I, I, I could take these, the, let the computer do the drawing, um, and then if I could calibrate the colors in such a way that I could control the mood. And, and so... There was this, at first I thought, well, it had to go from cool to warm. And when I did that, it was really bright. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but then we kind of settled on something that was like, it started, the darkest parts were cool, and then they built up to being something warm. And then the brightest parts got cool again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was this idea that they, I wanted them to shine on you, but I also wanted them to seduce you in. At the same time, I wanted them to put you in a place where you weren't sure what to, how to, how to, um, I, you know, I mean, they're it's uncomfortable. Like a, I found, which, and I say it in a good way. I mean, they're they were, they're, you want to look at them, but it's really hard. And and that was, I think, a really, good, I really enjoyed. It. I mean, I remember just sort of, especially seeing them when they're in space, and it was kind of a, where, which was a sort of, where I saw the exhibit in New York, the space, the ceiling's not so high, and there's something about how they really pulsated and this uh, sort of strobing effect that happened, but it wasn't really just like a sort of optical strobe, but there's this, that intensity was, was um, yeah, it's compelling and difficult at the same time, you, you know, and that there, are there other? Okay.
and the big potential is the, the way that sort of this moral trajectory made of um, artists sort of turning to very character out in the face of the fall and it just came to mind Picasso I said before I need limits to like I'm not really an expressionist in any sense <laughs> um, but I you know as a sort of person I'm not um, but I I, I I like there's something I studied color theory in college and I there's just something a desire to kind of get more out of less and I, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know how that, to, to contextualize that, except that it's, it, it's a psychological issue. Whereas, you know, it's something that you, well, with the crowds, there was this idea that they, they were all essentially, um, Payne's gray and um, a brand of acrylic color that has like a so-called neutral gray that is kind of warm and and so there was this idea of like you know three colors putting them together and trying to get different like there's a certain wow <laughs> no it's like such a deep like it's like a you know a very anyway there you could take like three things and you can mix them together in certain ways and it just expands so it's not about limiting it's more like about expansive an expansive approach within a sort of fixed system how many permutations can you create yeah, how many it's, it's, it's amazing it's yeah. like magic yeah. <laughs> or it's like science yeah. you know and it's like you, you make these experiments and and it doesn't always work out but sometimes it can really like it, you know it, it, just explode in possibility. So with the crowd paintings, they were all there was this limited palette, but it was intentionally made like there were black ones, and the black ones is just pure like Payne's gray, which is really black if you put it down straight away. But then if you mix white into it, it gets blue. So that color, that blue color is the same color as that black. So in a way, physically it's monochromatic, but the idea was to make these different paintings from the same palette and make them different. So when you walk in there, they're all playing off of each other, but nobody knows why. Mm -hmm. Like there's a kind of psychological game in a way. Not a game, that's too frivolous, not frivolous, but too arbitrary um, there's something I'm going you know I'm trying to like make things work in a way that is abstract because like I, I kind of don't necessarily know if it's possible to make a purely abstract painting like for me abstraction exists between things thank you very much everyone thank you Wayne